Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are starting a new series in the Gospel of Luke that will take us through Advent and up to Epiphany. Here, Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, and Jeffrey Myers will discuss the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and talk about what sets Luke apart from the other Gospels. We want to thank you for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this discussion. And here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, and Jeffrey Myers discussing the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm joined today by Alistair Roberts, joining us from the UK, and by Jeff Myers, joining us from St. Louis. Uh, we've been doing a, such a series of podcasts on the Gospel of John, and we concluded that in the last episode looking at the Book of Signs, uh, the, mainly looking at the first 11 chapters of the Gospel of John, and concluded with a couple of uh, with a glance, with one episode of a glance at the end of the Gospel of John, uh, looking at how the theme of s- signs and uh, that book of signs is actually fulfilled in the book of so-called book of glory at the end of John's Gospel. Now, we want to stay in the Gospels for the next couple of months as we're hitting toward the Advent season that begins in a couple of weeks. Uh, and we're going to continue to look at a Gospel, but this time at the Gospel of Luke. And we want to particularly look at the first two chapters of Luke. So over the first next couple of months, in the next couple of weeks leading up to the Advent season, through the Advent season, and then into the first couple of weeks of the Christmas season, uh, we'll be looking at uh, those chapters and looking at chunks of those chapters as we go. The, the birth narratives for John and Jesus, and that culminates with the scene of Jesus visiting Jerusalem with his parents at the age of 12. But before we delve into those specific chapters, we wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about the Gospel of Luke in general and how it relates to the other Gospels, how it differs from them, what distinctive uh, focus and and perspective it's giving about Jesus and about the events of the Gospel story, uh, and thought it might be helpful to uh, discuss some of the resources that we found useful in preaching and teaching on Luke. and uh, would find commentaries and monographs of various sorts that have been useful for those purposes. So, Jeff, I know you you mentioned uh, one commentary that you said has been particularly helpful as you've worked on Luke. Yes. I mean, if I was going to recommend one commentary for someone who's preaching or teaching through the gospel, it would be Arthur Just. Two volumes published by Concordia Publishing House. It's in the Concordia Commentary Series. And he is very thorough also very sensitive to symbolism and typology, and um, deals with the Greek text, but also does it in such a way that um, he, you know, it's not overly technical. Uh, And it pretty much, in the footnotes or somewhere in the commentary, you'll find every variation of interpretation on a given passage. Um, But I've often gone with his take. Um, He's Lutheran, uh, but he doesn't impose a kind of straitjacket, a law gospel straitjacket on the gospel. He's very careful with the text. The ones I've spent the most time with are Joel Green's commentary in the New International um, Commentary on the New Testament series. Um, 
Daryl Bock's two-volume commentary in the Baker exegetical commentary on the New Testament series. Um, Robert Stein, I think it's New American commentary um, in that series. And then Luke Timothy Johnson's commentary. Yeah, and you mentioned, Alistair, that you're, you find the historical information in these commentaries particularly useful. Yes. Um, a lot of the typological stuff is stuff that I'm more familiar, familiar with, but having a deeper rooting within the um, sociology, the history, archaeology, etc., that some of these com- more technical commentaries will give, I find that invaluable. It really fills in a gap that would otherwise be in my knowledge. Yeah. Well, for myself, I've uh, uh, found uh, the two-volume work by Robert Tannehill. It's the Narrative Unity of Luke-Acts. Uh, there's a volume on Luke and a volume on Acts. And I just recently was uh, preaching on the conversion of Saul in Acts 9. And was uh, I've just I've poked around in Tannehill, but the times I've done, I've found it's useful for spotting literary features and theological patterns in the text. Um, not, not as much historical information in that one, but it's, uh, as the title suggests, it's looking at the, at the narrative. It's a narrative kind of criticism of Luke Acts together, which I, um, I think it is, uh, I found that helpful. And, uh, a French author, Eugene Laverdier, uh, has two volumes on the Eucharist, uh, dining in the kingdom of God, uh, the origin of the Eucharist, according to Luke. And then there's another one, the breaking of bread which is subtitled The Development of the Eucharist According to Acts. And I, I believe that there may be another one on Luke. I, haven't, I wasn't able to find it, but um, uh, Leverdier is, is good. He's um, in touch with the typological uh, import of the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts and the interconnection. But he's doing, you know, as a Catholic author, I believe, and he's recognizing that the typologies are not just Christological typologies, but also Eucharistic typologies. And so he's looking at how the how the uh, the meal scenes in the Gospel of Luke are uh, are uh, developing part. They're part of the theology of the Eucharist in the early church. It's not just the final scene, uh, the climactic meal. Where well, actually, it's not the final meal in the Gospel of Luke, but kind of the climactic meal where Jesus shares a meal, the Last Supper with his disciples. That's not the only fodder we have for a theology of the Eucharist in the Gospel of Luke. Repeatedly, we have uh, scenes of meal mealtime. Luke 14 is almost entirely, I think it is entirely taking place at a meal. And Jesus is teaching various aspects of discipleship, but using practices at the table as a way of teaching discipleship, uh, how people jockey for position at, table, at the table, and how they use their guest list and their of being on somebody else's guest list in order to enhance their status. And Jesus is commenting on the honor system that governs ancient meals, and he's contrasting that with the kind of uh, meal practices that he expects from his disciples. And Leverdier is, is somebody who uh, brings all those uh, those aspects out. Uh, it's not an, uh, They're not extremely detailed exegetical studies, they're, uh, but they're uh, more typological studies. But again, highlighting the sacramental typologies, which I, I think are, those, are, those are particularly helpful. The reference to Tannehill uh, uh, reminds me of a, an important theme of uh, Luke. Uh, we're going to be looking at Luke over the next couple of months, but of course Luke is not a 
self-standing book. Uh, it's the first volume of a volume work. And that's something that we're alerted to by the very similar opening uh, paragraphs that we have in Luke and Acts. Uh, Luke begins his gospel by addressing somebody whom he calls Theophilus. Uh, and then he begins Acts by also addressing Theophilus. And those two introductions show us that the two books are supposed to be put together. And the, the way the books are arranged shows that they're also supposed to be supposed to be put together. There, there's a certain trajectory in Luke that, that moves toward the, toward the temple and toward Jerusalem. And then there's a trajectory in Acts that moves from Jerusalem out to Rome. So there's a, uh, you have to really put the two books end to end in order to get the full import of even of the gospel itself. You can't get the full import of the gospel without seeing its continuation in Acts. It's also true that uh, almost a fourth of Luke is about Jesus' last days in Jerusalem, and it's about his arrest and trials. So, and then twenty-five percent of Acts is about Paul's arrests and trials in um, in Jerusalem and Rome. Right. And that focus also is seen in the focus upon a journey. I think it's 35% of Luke is devoted to the journey towards Jerusalem, which contrasts with, I think it's 6% in Matthew and 8% in Mark or the other way around. But that shows just how, I mean, first of all, we often collapse the synoptics into each other. And this is a reminder that they are telling their stories in very different ways, highlighting particular things. But Jesus is on a journey within Luke. And Acts is also a story that's focused upon journeys and movement from place to place. And that, I think, helps us to capture some of the themes, particularly those associated with Jesus as the paradigmatic and climactic prophet. Yeah, I'm ashamed that I don't have any statistics to offer because both of you seem to have counted up the, the statistics and figured out what portions of the different books are devoted to different episodes. But the problem, I, I think we're probably alluding to this, Alistair, at the end, but the, the prophetic theme is, uh, that's an important factor in, of course, Jesus is identified a pro- as a prophet in all the Gospels, uh, but the prophet theme is particularly prominent in Luke. And this fits with a, a Jim Jordan-esque Biblical Horizons Theopolis reading of the Gospels. Uh, we've said for a long time that the canonical order of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is the order of composition. That goes against most modern scholarship, although it's a very traditional view from the early church. Uh, and in addition to that, the three, the four Gospels are following uh, the sequence of Old Covenant, Old Covenant covenants, the covenant sequence of the Old Covenant moving from a kind of mosaic emphasis through a Davidic emphasis with uh, the Gospel of Mark into a prophetic emphasis in Luke. You're moving from priest to king to prophet in the first three Gospels, and then John kind of brings these all together in, in, and elevates them all. You're moving from, um, if you think in terms of the faces of the cherubim, uh, you're moving from the ox to the lion to the, to the eagle, uh, and then to the man as you get to the Gospel of John. So the fact that Jesus is presented as a prophet in Luke fits with that overarching rubric. And Luke uh, is, of course, Paul's assistant, associate, and Paul is the prophet to the Gentiles. But what is surprising about that, if you were to uh, hear that Luke was Paul's uh, servant, Paul's assistant, uh, and then when you begin to read the Gospel of Luke, you have this large section 
that is unlike Matthew, Mark, Matthew and Mark, where Luke deals with this um, relationship between John the Baptist and Jesus to all these traditional uh, Jewish institutions and rituals. Um, and you, you have to wonder, well, why is Luke spending so much time on that, firmly situating Jesus in uh, in Israel as an Israelite, as a true Israelite, as a circumcised uh, uh, son of a faithful uh, mother and father uh, and family uh, in in Israel. Um, the, Matthew doesn't seem to want to do that, uh, not at least as thoroughly as Luke, and Mark doesn't, but Luke does. And you have a you have a theory to answer your own question. <laughs> It's no theory. It's the truth, man. Um, and that's because, uh, you know, everybody's one. Theopolis is a, is a Gentile. Either he is an actual person, probably is, or he stands for, you know, God-fearers, God-friends uh, of God. And he's looking around him during the time of Paul and seeing all these Jews acting crazy, uh, especially the official uh, Jews from Jerusalem, uh, and their emissaries that are sent out to spoil Paul's uh, work and to even try to kill Paul. And there, there's no doubt that these Gentiles are wondering, well, what in the world happened? Where? Uh, what, what about the Jews? What about the faithfulness in Jews? And I think Luke, what Luke does is shows that there's a remnant of faithful Jews in Israel. They're not associated with the temple. They aren't uh, the muckety-mucks in Jerusalem. They're these People outside of Jerusalem, these simple priests, these uh, uh, simple uh, believing uh, Israelites uh, who end up being very prophetic, like Zechariah prophesies, Mary prophesies, Anna prophesies. um, And yet, um, and and I think it's designed to give security, to give assurance to Theopolis and to the community of the Gentiles that, um, look, we're not just abandoning the, the uh, Israel. We're not just saying that they're completely um, that they're completely outside of God's plan. They this is how the remnant has served God's purposes in fulfilling all these promises that were given to the Jews. The kinds of things you're pointing to in the Gospels, Jeff, are uh, like the reference to the to the the uh, different orders of the priests in chapter one, or the purification of Mary after childbirth in chapter two. Those are the Jewish customs you're referring to. A further way it's helpful to read the um, account of Luke alongside Acts and against the background of Acts is recognising that Luke is himself a shadowy presence throughout the book of Acts. There are certain points within the text where we're not reading just about what Paul or Silas did or um, Paul and Barnabas or some other people. We're reading about we. Who is we? It's including Luke within the story. And Luke is someone who has access to a great number of the early leaders of the church, has the opportunity to spend time in Jerusalem for at least a number of months and interview some of these first-hand eyewitnesses, people who saw what went down in Jerusalem, what went down in Jesus' ministry more generally. And this emphasis upon being eyewitnesses is something that we find at the beginning of Acts as well, that these people who had been eyewitnesses from the very beginning, the ministry of um, John the Baptist and being witnesses to the resurrection that they needed to, um, from them, 
someone needed to be selected to be an apostle. And so Luke has a privileged access to the group of people who had witnessed these things firsthand. And so he's well situated to be someone to actually write it all down. He's someone who has a wider um, training, it seems. He's a physician. He's also someone who is um, very careful in laying this out in an orderly approach that will help us to see certain patterns, as we've already noted, that there are symmetries between the book of Acts and the book of Luke. There are symmetries between the book of Luke and Acts and parts of the Old Testament. And in all of these ways, Luke is um, part of the continuing um, testimony of these eyewitnesses. It's also worth thinking about what Michael B. Thompson has talked about as the holy internet. The fact that the early church was a densely connected group of different churches with gifts and ministers and missionaries being sent from one church to another, one region to another. And so there was constant communication. And it was never, often there's been this view of the different communities. So you have the Lucan community and the Matthean community and the Markan community and the Johannine community. And they each existed in um, hermetically sealed contexts where they're creating their own theologies in association with particular struggles that their communities faced. But when we actually read about the early church in the book of Acts, we see it's a place that is it's a connected with all these different lines of communication, constant movement between places. And so these things did not happen in a corner. These eyewitnesses were no more than one stage removed from any particular church. And Luke is one of the conduits that helps their witness to be brought out into the wider body of churches. And that, I think, gives us a firmer basis for our faith, recognizing that this is not an isolated witness that occurred in a corner. As Paul can say, these things did not happen in a corner, but the witness and the testimony has spread throughout the empire. It's Michael B. Michael B. Thompson, The Holy Internet, and it's an article within Richard Borkham's The Gospel for All Christians. Yeah, and I think that that's a, um, it reinforces a, the kind of the interesting aspect of inspiration that we find in Luke's introduction. We believe that holy men of God are carried by the Spirit to record what's in the Scriptures, and that includes Luke. But as you say, he's in contact with eyewitnesses. He wasn't himself an eyewitness of these things, but he's in contact with them, uh, and he's doing investigation and research. He says that at the beginning of both of the books. And so he's, that's under the guidance of the Spirit, but it's a, it's a, uh, not a not a dictation kind of not a dictation kind of idea of inspiration. So uh, Alistair's point about the eyewitnesses takes us back to the opening verses of Luke's gospel, where Luke is introducing his work to Theophilus. He's saying that he's investigated, he's set everything out in an orderly manner. And that begins with the words in my New American Standard translation, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us. Um, but accomplish is in is a translates a Greek word that includes the idea uh, of fulfillment. It's a ver- it's a version of plerao, or it has plerao that's part of that, which means to fulfill or to fill out. And uh, just reading that translation, it might sound like Luke is just doing historical investigation of things that happened uh, among the Jews of that time. 
but uh, the term actually has a fuller significance. And he's talking about the things that are fulfilled. That's carried out through the opening chapters and throughout the gospel, really. But as we look at the opening chapters of Luke, we'll see uh, Zechariah recognizing that the birth of John is a fulfillment of prophecy. Mary recognizes that her pregnancy is a fulfillment of prophecy. Simeon recognizes that um, Jesus' arrival is a fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. So it's not simply that things happened among us, but that uh, what God had promised and all the prophecies that God had made are being fulfilled. That's what Advent is, not just a record, a bare record of facts of things that happened 2,000 years ago, but rather it's concerned with the fulfillment that Israel had awaited for so long is now coming to pass. Peter, I would add one thought to that, one dimension. The things that have come to fulfillment also include the prophecies that are made, Luke records in his gospel, by people like Zechariah and Mary and the Magnificat and um, the others. Because I think what's happening, one of the reasons why Luke has to write this document is because what's happening is the great reversal that Mary predicts. And so that's coming to pass. That's why Luke has to spend a lot of time grounding Jesus in the faithful tradition of the Jews, at least one of the reasons. Seeing these opening verses, it's also a reminder that the early church took its task of writing down and transmitting a tradition of what occurred in the ministry of Christ very seriously. There were already a number of people trying to compile a narrative at this point. And so Luke is engaging in a task that is not exclusive to him. There are a number of people writing some sort of gospel account. There was also a great concern for eyewitnesses and ministers of the word to pass on um, their testimony. And that task of actually establishing a solidified body of material before eyewitnesses died out um, while this was still fresh in people's mind this I think again gives us firmer confidence in the witness that is born within this book and elsewhere within the gospels that the gospel writing was seen as part of the ministry of the apostles that they should either write gospels themselves or that they should be involved with others to write down these things, to um, research, to get all these eyewitnesses compiled in a particular place. So this could be a foundation for the later faith of the church. And there again, I find um, this witness to the context of the early church, a reminder that they probably didn't believe that Jesus was going to come back in a few years' time and that would be the end of it all. They were building a testimony to last for a long time ahead. They were preparing something that would last long before they had passed. And there, I think, again, we see ourselves brought into the picture. These things are written down not just for Theophilus, but also for us, that we might receive the witness that otherwise we might not have heard from any secure source. But these things were put down early on and in a secure way, in a context where there are many eyewitnesses that could check what was being put down in the context where there are many people trying to form orderly accounts. And so there's a greater confidence that comes with that. Right. Yeah. It, uh, just a, a bibliographical note, uh, Richard Balcom's book on Jesus and the eyewitnesses is a crucial recent study of that phenomenon. It's safe to say that the apostles, by Jesus' direction, stepped into the priestly role 
that the um, old priests and Levites had with regard to preserving the text or uh, with with regard to um, <clears throat> composing text and then preserving them. Interesting use of um, words here in verse 2. It's not the common word for ministers. It's the word for guardian, uh, and it's used to refer to temple guards, huperetai, guardians of the word. In Acts 5, it refers to the temple guardians. And in Acts 26, Paul uh, talks about his own commissioning being a commissioning uh, to be a guardian of the word. Um, So there's this priestly dimension here to the way the apostles understood their vocation to be the ones who would write down the the life of Jesus and then pass it on to everyone else. When Elitzer's point that this is recorded early, but it's recorded with a, a long term view, I think that's already implied in that first verse of Luke that I that I read. Um, again, it's not simply things that are accomplished that happen to happen, uh, but things that are fulfilled. And the phrase "among us" that Alistair mentioned, I think, is important. Uh, you could say that Luke is talking about "among us," meaning those of his contemporaries uh, who were living at the time that all these things occurred. But that "among us" is really looking ahead to Acts and beyond Acts. And as we uh, come to the celebration of Advent, that's what, we're, that's what we're celebrating. We're celebrating the past fulfillment of God's promises in Jesus Christ, but we're also celebrating the continuing fulfillment things that are continuing to be accomplished among us by the Spirit of Jesus. Uh, What God had promised and uh, God had uh, prophesied is still an ongoing unfolding in the history of the church. And Advent is a celebration of that present reality as well as the past reality. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.